Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to today's episode, My Dad, Lou Costello. Today, I'll be speaking with Chris Costello, daughter of Lou Costello, who, along with his partner Bud Abbott, made up the legendary comedy duo that entertained millions of people on stage, radio, film, and eventually television from the 1930s through the 1950s. Their timeless comedy continues to entertain many people to this day. And now I'd like to welcome Chris to our show. Welcome, Chris. Hello there. How are you? I'm doing very well. Very well. We are so happy to have you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. It really is. Thank you. I just finished reading your audio, or listening, I should say, to your audio book, Lose On First. I absolutely loved it, and I'll tell you why. First of all, listening to you tell the story was amazing. And secondly, I grew up watching Abbott and Costello shorts and movies, and I was a big fan. And I'll tell you, recently I've been watching Abbott and Costello movies with my six-year-old grandson, and he is hooked on them. He absolutely loves them. Well, that's always good to hear, especially with a younger, younger generation who, you know, if it's not in color, they have a tendency to kind of gloss over it. doesn't really interest them. So every time I hear something like that, it's, I just get so happy inside. Good for you. Good grandpa. Oh, yeah. You know what happened? This was about a month ago. We had watched Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and that is his favorite, and it is my favorite. And we watched it together about six times. And he said to me, Baba, do they make this in color? And I said, well, I think they do. I think there's a color version out there. And he said to me, Baba, if we have a color version, will they have to have new actors on it? Because wouldn't the actors in the black and white be dead? (laughs) (laughs) Out of the mouth of babes. Out of the mouth of babes. That, That is absolutely hysterical. I love that. I love that. Yes. You know, we, we've occasionally, you know, we'll get in letters from young kids. I mean, like under the age of 10 or 8. And they're addressing it actually to Bud and Lou as they're still alive because they're watching them on TV. And I just wish they could, both men were here to see something like that. Because when it came to kids, I mean, oh, my Lord. Well, my dad, especially to see a kid really get behind their comedy. But this would have belated both men. What a true gift. Yes. Timeless. Universal. They are. They are timeless. And I want to start off by asking you, where was your dad born and where did he grow up? And then after that, tell us a little bit about where his family roots were from. Well, my dad was a Pattersonian. Patterson, New Jersey is where he was born and raised and for his entire life. He never forgot his hometown. I think Patterson even refers to him as Patterson's favorite son. He uh, was born in 1906, and his father, Sebastian, who was later nicknamed Chris, uh, came from Caserta, Italy, north of Rome. He had followed two of his brothers out, and of course, the Patterson Silk Mill provided a lot of work, especially for weavers and dyers that were coming in from Europe. He was maybe, I would say, hmm probably 18 or 19 when he came over and he was staying in a rooming house and across the street he saw 
my grandmother, who was maybe 14 at the time, and he was captivated because he said that she looked like a real Irish sort of girl with the jet black hair and the fair skin. At any rate, they married four years later, and they set up their home right there in Patterson. I think it was on Market Street. And then, well, there was three children. There's Pat, my dad's older brother, and then my father. And then uh, about six years after my father's birth, then came Marie, who was the youngest. My grandmother was a second-generation Pattersonian. Her grandfather came from Lyon, France, migrated to the U.S. So there's Irish, Italian, English in my dad's uh, genealogy. He, he never forgot Patterson. He, in fact, when he and Bud went out to Hollywood and they first started making films, they had stipulated in the contract that uh, the films would first be previewed or premiered in Patterson at the old Fabian Theater, which sadly is no longer there. But uh, he never lost that sense of, even though he lived on the West Coast, we were all brought up with that kind of East Coast feel. It was coffee clutches on the weekends when he was off work at uh, our grandmother's. We were raised, I think, just very East Coast. But he never, he never, ever, ever forgot his roots. Oh, boy, I'm so glad to hear that because I am a Jersey boy myself. We what live, part? I live in Essex County. I'm in West Caldwell, which is maybe 15 minutes from Patterson. I know there's a statue of your dad in Patterson. There is. It's actually in the Lou Costello uh, Memorial Park. The park, I believe, right now is undergoing a massive transformation and renovation. And the statue was the brainchild of boxing promoter Lou Duva, who was Sam Cuccinello back in the early 90s. I uh, had it erected. I went out there for the opening and the unveiling with my niece. It was really an all-star affair. It was just beautifully, beautifully put together and done. I have to say that there are a group of people that call themselves Lou's Angels. Lou's Angels make sure the statue is completely cleaned. Uh, they go out, they do a cleanup. There are some homeless people that uh, are in the park, and they actually bring food. They feed them. Many of the homeless want to help. They want to pitch in. And you see this melding together of Patterson citizens help uh, beautify the park. Uh, they plant flowers. They make sure that the statue is totally clean. It's not unusual to see people hoisting people up, some on ladders, to make sure that the derby is all polished, the nameplate is polished. And that was started, uh, spearheaded really by uh, some wonderful, wonderful people and fans. Uh, Jeff Salamando of Trenton, New Jersey, who actually is an extremely good writer and is working on a project now on uh, Abbott and Costello's Bond Tour back in the early 40s. Uh, Ginny Capitelli in Long Island and uh, Jan Huddleberg, Robert Athanasia, who was the first member of the Abbott and Costello fan club and writes a beautiful newsletter. So many people are involved. And I've got to tell you, that just warms my heart and that of my family because these people are taking time out from their lives to go out there to make sure that that statue is protected, uh, is well cleaned. In fact, there's one gentleman, uh, Lou Pacelli, who, God bless him, on his way back from work, will always stop by to make sure everything is okay, you know, at the park with Lou's statue. So, those are the type of people, I say, you know, Jersey has some of the best people, and New York, too. They really help. Oh, that's wonderful. I just wanted to tell you one little story. Uh, years ago, when my daughter was in high school, one of her best friends, 
she actually lived with her dad with her great grandfather. And he lived to be a hundred, I think he was about 103 or 104 years old. And yeah, God bless him. And he was a, he used to be a boxing corner man. I think, I think he was known as best cut man in the, uh, in the sport. I just wanted to meet this gentleman. So I went over one afternoon and we sat and talked. I wish I had recorded it, but he told me that he grew up with Lou Costello and he knew him. He lived in the neighborhood and he grew up with him. And Boy, I'd love to have him around right now to share some stories, but I knew you're... You know, it's so, it's so true. I've got to tell you something, Dave. There are so many people that did remember Dad and did grow up with him or went to school with him or just remember him when he would come into Patterson. He never, ever, ever hit the East Coast without making his visit into Patterson where uh, he is known to bring truckloads of baseball equipment and sporting equipment for the Little League team or people in need. That was who he was, seriously. I mean, he. there's an old expression uh, when somebody has long arms and deep pockets. Uh, you know, he just couldn't give enough back. That was what was his oxygen, is to make sure when he made money, it wasn't to hoard money for himself. It was a way for him to help others because he was like that as a kid. My grandmother would tell stories at the, the kitchen table you know, having coffee with her. And she would tell these wonderful stories. If only I had the video camera and the tape recorder back then. But he was always, always, always for the underdog. She said there was an orphanage in Patterson. And sometimes, you know, uh, other teams or schools didn't want to play, you know, with the the orphanage kids. But he would go there and he would play on their team. And uh, even with his younger sister, Marie, my grandmother would say, well, he would take Marie down to the store to buy her candy, but he'd be going with some of his friends and his friends would say, now why do you have to always have your sister with you? And he would always turn around and say, because she's my sister and I love her. You know, and I want to, you know, I mean, that's who he was. You know, he had such a deep, deep love for people. He always wanted to help people. As I said, it was his oxygen. Oh yeah. And I could see that when I was listening to the book, just my heart was filled with the just natural way that your dad helped people. He always wanted to help people. And it was just amazing. It's so consistent throughout his story that it was, it was just amazing. It really was. Well, you know, James, even when they were in um, Hollywood and doing films, you know, with all the people that I interviewed for my book back in the mid to late seventies, all of them made the comment that the crews, first of all, loved him. When he would walk, and I, I ha- I'm singling out my dad for one reason. Bud was a little bit more on the quieter side. Dad was out there. He wanted to be there with the people. Uh, the crews loved him. And uh, Charlie Barton, the director, and a couple of actors would say, Mike Lazurk would say, the minute Lou came on that soundstage, it was like the whole set lit up. Because he'd go up to the guys, construction crew or the painters or the prop guys, and he he would have coffee with them. He'd want to know about them, their families. You know, how are they doing? And at the end of the film, it was Dad and Bud who basically gave what is known today as the rap party because they made sure that the crew would think they would have food delivered to the set. Uh, Dad was known, in fact, that this came from a carpenter that I interviewed who was with Universal for many years. He said, I never, ever witnessed anything like I did Lou Costello when he climbed up a ladder to hand a lighting man a $100 bill to thank him. 
He said, you didn't find that in Hollywood. You know, it was just not really done. So that's the side of my dad and Bud that I like to bring out. And certainly never to diminish, you know, Bud's importance because Bud was a, a very generous man. He was a humanitarian as well. I think with dad, though, he was just always out in the forefront. Whereas Bud had a tendency, I think, to lay back a little bit between scenes. He would go off to the trailer. Or sometimes they would go off together to play cards. That they like to do as well. <laughs> so, yes, I, you know, but uh, it was a great time, a great era. It certainly was. Uh, let me just back up just a little bit. You mentioned a little bit about your dad's childhood. When did the sort of the beginning of his love for entertaining and making people laugh start to emerge? At what point in his childhood did that start happening? Well, my grandmother would say that he always had this knack for getting people to laugh. Because even as a young kid, she said he was always doing something funny to invoke the laugh. She loved telling the story about how when they, they moved and they had this upstairs and there was a banister uh, that he would always like to fly down the banister. And she said, oh, my God, he is going to kill himself. You know, but then he would get to the bottom and do a, a trip and, and a somersault and everybody would start laughing. So I think it was always inside of him. I know he always had a fascination for films, especially Westerns, and he would ditch school. He and his brother, Pat, would ditch school. My grandfather would find them over at the theater. He'd be seated directly behind them, and he'd lean in and he'd say, I'll see you boys at home, <laughs> and they'd get caught. Um, but, uh, and his idol was Charlie Chaplin. So I think it was Chaplin, basically, that formulated that seed inside of him. He wanted to be an actor, but he also loved sports. And at one point, he wanted to be go pro in basketball. He played on a Patterson team called the Armory Five. And he was short for a basketball player, but he could shoot perfect shots. He was a foul shooting champion, I think, two years in a row, 21 and 22. And so all of this kind of came into play, even when he had a short stint as a prize fighter, amateur. Uh, he, used, he learned how to use his feet. You know, he became very agile. So all of this, I think, had a combinational effect on him. And then he went out to Hollywood, of course, the first time. And uh, it was hard to secure work. It wasn't as easy as he thought maybe it would be or hoped it would be. And landed some stunt work. And then finally came back to the East Coast. And he was told by Dolores Costello, if you're serious about this, then go back east, own your craft, let Hollywood ask for you. And that's what he did. When did he actually meet... Bud Abbott. Well, he and Bud's paths had crossed many times on the burlesque stage. Bud was one of the most sought-after straight men in the business. Everybody wanted to work with this man. A couple of times, I think, when Dad's partner had gotten ill, I think Bud had filled in one or two times, according to Betty Abbott, his wife. But then what happened is that my dad's straight man collapsed in the dressing room and passed away. And Bud filled in for him. And it was, I think, after that, that Bud had sent my dad a telegram who had gone to Chicago to work the Orpheum. And I think I have the, the correct dater. Uh, and said, when you come back, he said, would you be interested in teaming up? My father sent a reply back saying, don't do anything until I get there, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, history was made. They officially teamed up in 1936. Is there a point, do you think, where you could name where their career really took off with the two of them together? 
Well, I think it was starting, you know, on the burlesque stage is where they really mastered their craft. But I think the, the great launching pad for them had to have been the Kate Smith show, which gave them national exposure. And uh, they were doing Who's On First. And, of course, Dad really wanted to do Who's On First on Kate Smith's show. Ted Collins, the producer and manager for Kate, did not think the routine was really funny. But Dad and Bud masterminded this plan to get that routine on the airwaves by simply saying one night, you know, Ted, I don't know if we can go on because we've exhausted every routine we have. And he got very nervous. He said, well, you've got to go on, do anything. I don't care what you do, do, the, do that baseball thing, <laughs> you know, and they did. And as I leave Flores, who I interviewed and worked the NBC switchboard, she said the switchboard lit up like a Christmas tree. Wow. It was then that universal sent them the telegram and wanted them to come out to do a test film called One Night in the Tropics in 1940. And uh, it would see how they went over with theater audiences. They kept incorporating, of course, more and more of the routines in the film until poor Alan Jones, and it was his film. He said, well, that'll teach me about not exercising my editing rights. <laughs> but, you know, history was made. And then, of course, they put in their first feature film as a team called Bug Private. Before we continue talking about his career, at what point did your dad meet and marry your mom? Well, my dad was a dancing juvenile uh, before he teamed up with Bud. Uh, that's where he got his start in uh, burlesque, and he happened to be appearing in Ann Corio's This is Burlesque at the Republic Theater. My mom, who was born in Scotland, came over with her family at the age of 12, was um, a fantastic dancer. And she, I think, early on had envisioned herself going, you know, to Broadway and working as a dancer. She happened to land in the Ann Corio show as a pony, which is the shortest girl on the end. My dad took one look at her and asked Ann Corio if she would make the introduction. And Ann said she approached my mother, also named Ann, and said that uh, Lou Costello would like to meet her. She looked at Anna and said, now, why would I want to go out with a comic? If I want to starve, I can do that on my own. Thank you very much. <laughs> but Dad persisted. <laughs> they went out, and they were married, I think, about maybe a year later, a little under a year. Yes, and I just wanted to say that in listening to Luzon first, mm-hmm. sounded like they loved each other very much and cared for each other very, very much. And it they was, did. Yeah, it was very heartwarming to hear that, it, despite many of the challenges and really tragedies they went through together. So when your dad entertained, we mentioned before he was on stage, he was on radio, movies, and then eventually television. Did he have any particular mode of entertainment that he preferred or felt most at home at? I think he found his comfort in all levels. He was a real visionary. He wanted to always take the next step up. Uh, from burlesque, he wanted to do radio. He understood that radio would give them more of the national exposure. Same with going to Hollywood. That was the next step up um, because he really wanted to do the film. But that being said, that I think they always enjoyed getting back to their roots, which was the live stage. So they also continued doing personal appearances. When they could get up in that live stage and get that immediate audience feedback, which is what you don't get mm-hmm. when you're filming, on a soundstage, uh, except, you know, the crew would occasionally bust up laughing. 
you know, it's TV when they did the Colgate shows or the Abbott and Costello television show. To them, it was getting back to their roots because, first of all, with the television show that they did the two seasons, they employed, or Dad did, you know, all, all their old burlesque buddies because it got them back to their roots, and that's what they loved. I think he enjoyed all mediums, but if you were to say, well, which one might he enjoy a little bit more, but would enjoy a little bit more, probably getting back on the live stage where you can feed off of the audience. Yeah, he was such a physical comic, too. Oh, he was. Oh, yeah. He did a lot of his own stunts, didn't he? Yeah, he did, except uh, there were there were stuntmen that worked on their films. There were three. In fact, I think it was Irving Gregg who worked on Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. If you remember the scene where Dad in the shipping office is up on that tall freight swing back and forth, mm-hmm. well, that's not really Dad up there. That's Irving Gregg. <laughs> and if you take a real close look, you could tell. There's a striking similarity, but it's different facial. So that was Irving Gregg. And then also Vic Parks, who looked so much like my dad. You would have thought these two were twins. And he worked on a lot of the films in the 50s, like uh, Jekyll and Hyde and Invisible Man. And some of the, the stunts studio would not let dad perform only because of insurance. And, you know, he got injured. Well, then it cost them money. So Vic did a lot, you know, of the stunts. But uh, as far as the pratfalls and a lot of the physical stuff you see him do, that was still bad. Yeah. Did your dad have a favorite movie of his? You know, if he did, I have no idea because I was so young. I would not have been privy to any conversations that were floating around as far as them talking about their film career. Maybe the earlier films would be a good safe guess. Say that I can tell you the film he did not like, which was really... Uh, and this is on record with Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Although when they started filming, he had a great time because they really enjoyed the people he was playing against and stuff or with. But I would say his earlier films where the energy was higher. They were younger. They were just new to Hollywood. I think that's always an exciting experience. And sometimes you hold that a little bit closer to your heart. When dad came home, even as a kid, I remember there was no discussion about his film career, this or that. Uh, I think sometimes a lot of people think that's all he did was talk about his film career. I mean, I've had people ask me, dad would take me to school and I, sometimes when he was off and they go, oh, did your dad ever talk to you about his burlesque years? Well, first of all, he's not going to talk to a six or seven year old kid <laughs> about his burlesque years. I mean, it would have gone right over my head, you know, like next. Mm-hmm. Um, that would not have interested me. Now you gain a little bit more appreciation as you get a little bit older. Yeah, it would have been nice to sit down with Dad and maybe talk to him about his career. Unfortunately, that just didn't happen. No, you didn't have enough time, sadly, for that. Now, your dad had quite a few friends, I should say. How did he treat his friends? Oh, you know, we have the open-door policy at our home. Everybody was welcome. And if you were a serviceman in uniform, you'd just walk right in, go to the pool. My mom used to say that sometimes she would walk through the house and look outside and see all these strangers, but she didn't know who they were. Well, Lou sent me. He was very good to his friends. Uh, he never, ever, ever forgot his friends. And I'd say most of his closest friends were not the Hollywood crowd. His close friends were the boyhood friends, uh, people he grew up with in New Jersey. I think his closest Hollywood friend would have been Bill Bendix. Bill and his wife, Cass, were very, very dear friends of uh, my parents 
I would say as far as Hollywood goes, that would probably be the one person that he was the closest to. Your dad was also very patriotic, I understand, during World oh, yeah. War II. He uh, played an active part in that. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, dad had a deep, and but had a deep love for their country and for the servicemen and servicewomen who served the country. When it came time to step up to the plate to help Uncle Sam raise money for the war effort with uh, the bomb tours, um, Hollywood was the cause to do it. There were many celebrities who were out there doing shows to raise the money. And Dad and Bud decided that they wanted to do a cross-country tour. They funded much of this on their own. They raised a record $83 million in, I think, just three days. Wow. And were honored on the steps of City Hall by Mayor Ferriello LaGuardia. So when it came to his country, oh boy, he just, he rolled up his shirt sleeves. In fact, whenever they would go out to a restaurant during the war years, if they ever saw a table with servicemen, they would pick up the bill and tell the guys, whatever you want, it's on us. Dad would sit with them, crack some jokes, this and that. And I've had people write me letters saying my father remembers meeting your father when he was on leave and they were in Hollywood and da, 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 and how gracious he was, he would sign autographs. My dad loved his fans, but you put a serviceman, servicewoman in uniform, that was it. You know, I mean, uh, what do you want? What do you need? Patriotism is so important. He loved his country. Yeah, he did. And it was in 1943, sadly, in the middle of World War II, that your family suffered a terrible tragedy. Your mom and dad lost their one-year-old son, Butch, your brother, in a tragic mm -hmm. drowning accident. How did that mm -hmm. terrible event change your dad and your mom and the Costello family going forward? Well, I think it changes any family, regardless of whether you're a celebrity or not. They say no parent should ever have to outlive a child mm -hmm. or bury their child. They were no different than if it had been just Lou and Ann Costello not being celebrities. It destroyed them, just absolutely destroyed them. The only way my dad, I think, could deal with this pain was to do something positive and to give kids a chance in his son's memory. And that's when he and Bud launched a series of tours to raise money for the Lou Costello Jr. Youth Center, which today is still very much active only it's now the Lou Costello Jr. Recreation Center, and it was taken over by Parks and Recreation in Los Angeles. And it still serves. But what he wanted is he did not want to build a youth center in an affluent area where kids had everything. He wanted the dirtiest, the roughest area that he could find, the most poverty-stricken area he could find, because those were the kids that would need it the most. And what he did is when the doors opened in 1947, First of all, there was an Olympic-sized swimming pool that was built so that every child would uh, learn how to swim. No one was ever charged. There was a medical clinic, soda fountain. There was a movie theater. There was a wood shop a section for the younger kids. I mean, just everything. He pulled out the stops for these kids. To this day, that facility is still going and with a lot of love behind it. My sister and I still go down there and give where we can. We brought down a bunch of Abbott and Costello coloring books last year. And it's just a great group of people, great group of people. So his dream is still going on. Oh, Chris, that's such a wonderful thing to hear and to know that out of tragedy 
came something really, really wonderful for the underprivileged people, children particularly, who now have this facility and will be able to have wonderful memories. Yeah, it was so important for him. He loved children, and he wanted kids to have the same benefit that other kids had. And so, and he would always go down to the center. In fact, he and Joe Besser, who played Stinky on the TV show, you know, would go down there, get either Joe Besser dressed up as Santa Claus or get somebody in to do it. And they would bring truckloads of gifts for the kids. He did an interview with an Australian newspaper when he and Bud were in Sydney and Melbourne. And they were talking about the youth center. And dad had made mention that a lot of these kids had never seen a television set, had never seen a movie in a movie theater. And what he and Bud did is they bought the biggest television they could find and they had sports on it. And these kids were just surrounding this TV looking at it, but they were so excited because they were able to see something, you know, like a sporting event. And he said, that's what it's all about. It's the giving back. That's terrific. Thank you for sharing that. Really thank you, Chris, for that. I wanted to ask you, what are some of your fondest memories of your dad? I know your dad loved Christmas, for instance. What are mm-hmm. some of your memories mm-hmm. of, of Christmas and also other stories about your dad that are particularly touching to your heart? Oh, well, if I tell too much, then I give away a lot of what's in the audio. Oh, well, we're not. Okay. We, <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't want to do um, that. I don't want to do that. You know, but I mean, there's so many stories that it's hard to retrieve just one story. I mean, for me, it's like the holidays are special. It brings back a lot of memories, as it does my sister. He was a kid who just wanted to be Santa Claus. So everything was done over the top, from the decoration of the home inside and out to the lavish gift giving for friends and family. To me, it was the time when he would take me and my cousins to see Santa Claus. And we had this restaurant not too far away from our home. And there would be these wooden steps going leading up to look like roof level and with a platform with Santa Claus. And I can remember us climbing those steps, cousins and I, to tell Santa what we wanted for Christmas. And we'd be looking down below. And, of course, Dad would just be surrounded by fans and this and that. But he'd have his hands shoved in his pocket with that cigar in his mouth with his big, big grin, watching us all up there. Because <laughs> he was a big kid at heart. Big oh, kid at heart. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's. He was just, I mean, people think that he was the character off screen that he was on screen. Not true. You know, he was a little bit quieter, but he could turn it on instantly. But I just remember our times out at the ranch where when he'd come home from filming and he'd grab a bar of soap and a washcloth and he'd get in the pool. He'd wash his pancake makeup off his face. (laughs) It would just be, you know, running through the water for his chill out time. He loved basketball, so he'd grab the basketball and off he'd go down the gravel road to the barn where our Uncle Bob, who was the foreman, had put up a big basketball hoop, and he would shoot these unbelievable baskets with such the greatest, with the cigar in his mouth. Now, Chris, sadly, your dad passed away in 1959 when you were you were still a kid. You were about, what, 11 years 11. old? Mm-hmm. That's right. And then you lost your mom later that year. Nine months later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your life like after that? Who did you go to live with after both your parents? You're going to have gone? to read, but you're going to have to get the audio oh, book and listen right. to the we'll bonus st- chapter. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that one alone then. I mean, that's, that's just, oh my Lord. Whew. You know, it's like, I guess 
everybody phrased me. It was, it was a tough time. It really was. In, in many more ways than one. He was so giving to so many members of the family, sometimes to a fault. And take that breadwinner away. People are like, what am I going to do? It, uh, it was a tough time. It just was a tough time. Oh, but I, we survived, and that's the main thing. We you, did survive. You did. In what ways do you think, Chris, you're like your dad? Oh, Lord. Is that a tough <laughs> question? <laughs> oh, my God. Nobody could be like my dad. <laughs> Nobody can be they like They broke my the dad. mold. They broke the mold when they made him, you I know, think, right? <laughs> I just, yeah, I can't even do a comparison. I really can't. That's so unfair. Um, wow. I wish I had the answer to that one. I don't know. I mean, it, it's like, first of all, I always like to say I'm more like me, you know, because I am an individual. Yes. And uh, even though that, you know, I have the name Costello, you know, I always like people to, to get to know me for me and not because of who my dad was. Some people say, oh, my gosh, you look just like your dad or, oh, my gosh, you still look like your dad. And I kind of think, nah, not really, you know, because <laughs> when I was younger, I looked a lot like dad with the pug nose. And then as I grew older, I could see more of my mom, you know, which is a great compliment because she's a beautiful woman. But I see a lot of my mom and I see a lot of dad in my sister, Patty. It's hard to say, but I always like people to look at me first for being me. Yes, you are. We all are ourselves, right? Because it's hard to live in a shadow, oh, you know, yeah. as you know, it is like to want to be who you are. And that's what he would want because he was a stickler on education boy. Education was a lot to him. In fact, I think he always regretted not going to college mm. because he just saw the importance of education. And I think he knew what a tough business show business could be. And I think he would do anything to kind of distract his kids away from it. But his grandson, my sister's first son, Lou, named after him, earned a doctorate at Columbia University. And who is now Dr. Lewis Cristillo. So I know that that would have absolutely put dad, you know, in such a wonderful orbit to think that his grandson was a doctor and earned it from Columbia University. So oh, really sweet. promoted education. Yes. I have one last question for you. What do you think your dad would have wanted his legacy to be? Oh. That's a tough one, I know. Well, let's, put it, well, let's put it this way. I think dad in his heart would have, yes, he would have appreciated everybody appreciating the, his comedy because that's what he loved doing. But I think he would want people to follow his example of caring for others and to give back to others. That, that was so important for him, you know, to help people. He just had a deep, deep, deep love for people and a huge humanitarian heart. So should we talk about the audiobook now? <laughs> yes, that, that brings us to the audiobook. First of all, I'd like to say, Chris, that this has been a wonderful interview, but this just scratches the surface of your audiobook <laughs> because the audiobook just absolutely brings to the, the amount of research and work that must have gone into creating that book is just mind blowing because your dad comes alive. I feel like I know him now. Oh, thank you. And, and really the emotions, the, the heartstrings get pulled, the laughter. It's just an amazing book. And this just grazes the top. And I hope it just piques the interest of our listeners. So they will want to get Well, I have book. to say, you know, I, I can't take all the credit for this one because seriously, James, I had a heck of a producer on this, uh, Pamela Wise, and also 
a heck of a sound engineer slash editor, uh, Jim Miller at JMC Sound in Northern California. It was a team effort, a team effort. Just wanting to give the fans a little bit more than just a narration. And it got a little bit more in the book. And then, of course, the bonus chapter, which will answer all the questions of, you know, what happened to all of us, yes. you know, following our parents' death. And also leads into how my dad would want his memory to be honored. It came out in October. It is on all the leading audio book apps online. It should be up with Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I know you can upload it off of Chirp and audiobooks.com as well as any other. You know, just do a Google search. It's audio. It's not the CD version. Hopefully, we'll be coming out with that a little bit later on. I uploaded it onto my phone without any problems. I put my earbuds in, and I listened to it every morning while I was walking my dog. And my, my dog was exhausted because I kept walking and walking and walking. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's wonderful. Oh, and Chris, thanks. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being on our show and just sharing the stories of your amazing family, your amazing dad. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, are you on our Facebook page? Now you have a Facebook page for your book or is it you personally? No, no, we have a big Abbott and Costello, you know, group. Um, in fact, you know, you can go to who's on first, question mark, uh, Abbott and Costello. We also put out a wonderful monthly newsletter on Abbott and Costello, chock full of information. And if anybody is interested, they can certainly email me at accollectibles at aol.com. That's accollectibles at aol.com. That's correct. Uh -huh. So if anybody has any questions about your audio book or anything else, they, they can reach you there. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you so much again. And for the rest of our listeners, until next time, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.